Well, hello, Sarah Zimmer, and welcome to Raucous Pockets again. I'm hoping we get this one right this time, or I get this one right. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? As always, excellent. I have no complaints. Who's going to listen to him anyways, right? Oh, and no. hi, Mom, before I forget. Say hi to your mother as well, Sarah. To my mother? Yes. Hello, Susan Wilson. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, so when we last, last, we've tried this now about six times, and for various reasons, it hasn't worked. So this number seven is a magical number. So <laughs> that's White Claw. Perfect. Sounds like it's pretty good. Okay, so you're uh, out of the military now for, what, 25 years? Well, I haven't been out for 25. Or you after 25, 25 years service. I did. Yeah, I got out August 31st, 2018. And uh, you became a CEO of your own company? Yes, I started that while I was still in the military. And that's called what? Langford Original. Might as well plug it right now. Thank you. <laughs> Langfordoriginal.com. Check it out. And I can definitely attest to them having some quality kit. Thank you. And I'm not just saying that because it was a freebie. It was actually good kit. Good solid hat. I got a lot of compliments on it, actually. Or maybe it's just glad. complimenting me because it covers up my bald head and they'd rather look at the hat. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, it must help everybody then, right? <laughs> You're not <laughs> a baldist, are you, Sarah? You got something against bald guys? shine on the top of your head, yeah, blinding I can, everybody. I can powder it, I suppose. All, <laughs> right, all right. So you got out and uh, one of your friends started noticing that you were having some issues. You seemed angrier more tense, more, more mother hen kind of thing. Would that yeah, be accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I noticed it in myself because I got out, I had like two weeks off. I started university and I noticed in university, I would just like get angry really quick at everything. Like almost like snap show. And I thought, well, it's because I don't know how to deal with the civilian world. So I thought that for a long time. And then my friend was like, eh, I don't know. So then once I was done school and I started, because I had started going to the psychologist, because I was like, I think I need to go talk to somebody about this. Veterans Affairs was like, yeah, we'll cover it because you have anxiety. But during that time, it was like I could feel myself amp up. And it's almost like when I would get annoyed back, you know, I can't remember ever being like that before. And I would say a lot of times I thought, well, it's just because I'm getting older or it's because I have so many years in the military. You kind of hit that like bullshit threshold right. where you're like, oh, it's just because I'm tired of things. But it's like I could feel myself going from zero to 100. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to push right past that. And I would hit a thousand and freak out and then I would rein it back down to about a hundred and then be pissed off. And I was like, I've never been like this. I need to figure it I out. I don't recall you really being, I mean, you were always a, uh, uh, striving to achieve high goals kind of thing. You, you seem, yeah. And I was a, always headstrong. Like I wasn't one to get pushed around. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and no, I, think I never noticed because, that about you. Oh, I know. Shocking. <laughs> but I think it was like when you're a remuster, it's like you have, more to prove, I think, is what I was always like, I can't go backwards, so I have to just keep pushing. Right. 
And when you have more years in, you're like, okay, well, I'm not brand new. Stop treating me like I'm an idiot. You know, because I had that a lot. People are like, oh, you're brand new to here. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not brand new to the military. Like, I do know what I'm doing. Don't treat me like I know nothing. Right. And you had, what, two operational tours to Afghanistan, correct? Yeah, I had two full tours and a TAV. The and first time I was a medic, the TAV, I was an x-ray. And then my last full tour, I was an x-ray tech. And did you find uh, one of those tours more stressful than the other? Or did you find they both went smoothly? Or how did it go for you? I think my first tour as a medic, because I was in Kabul for most of it, that's when I was outside the wire. Like the presence patrols, it wasn't really as much. Like when I was there, it wasn't as big of a thing. I saw way more working at the roll three, seeing everything off the hop. You know, I mean, we're seeing people that are getting scooped up and they're there 20 minutes later. Right. So it was more. And then because of the deployment that I was on, I deployed with a Francophone unit. So they didn't get me because I I was Anglophone. And they were like, oh, it must be nice to have a day off. And then my pager would go off and I'd be running to the roll three. Yeah. But it was like, there was a very big disconnect with language, the unit, and they just didn't know what I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Right. And you were dealing with multinationals. You weren't just dealing with Canadians. Canadian yeah, absolutely. Injured. I mean, we dealt with everything. The whole southern, Af- you know, southern area of operations, right? So it didn't matter. Civilians, um, you know, military, all military that we were responsible for, you know. So some on, days it was like, okay, we're fine. Other days it would just hit you. But I was going to say on average, how many patients a day were you getting? Well, I mean, when I was there on the tab, I remember like one of the nights, it was one of the last nights before I left and we just lost one of the guys from Padawawa, who was a friend of mine. And so we'd had the ramp ceremony and then the next day my pager went off and it just said fallen angel. And I had no idea what it meant. And I was like, you know, everyone's pager went off, but I was living at the roll one because I was only a tab. So I just went to the roll three and I think it was an Australian heli- uh, yeah, Australian helicopter crash. We had 21 patients come in back to back. And it was just, you know, every single person that we could get. And it was like, you know, at one point, everyone's crowded around. The equipment was not the best because they had bought this x-ray equipment that was just, we could run two films at a time. So you could just imagine we have every bay full because the new roll three, which a lot of people didn't see because they'd already done their tours. Yeah. But the new roll three had four big bays, 12 bays in total were full. Like we were just cycling people through. So it's like, you know, I was like, I'll take care of this side, but I was just writing things down. Like, okay, what bay is this coming from? And one guy came and he's like, here's the chest x-ray bay three. I'm like, we already did bay three. He's like, Oh yeah, that guy, didn't make it but it's like trying to kind of reconcile those things it's like 21 patients in a row which you know as well as i do it's a mass casualty so it overwhelmed us but we just had every single person from the entire roll three just you know bringing people in what what you was know, your max outside. do you remember what your max was before they called it a mass casualty i mean obviously this one was a mass cash well i mean we had we only had four trauma teams so yeah. you have four trauma teams. Then we pull everybody who's working over in like the clinic to run 
you know, Triage more or... of the walking wounded. Yeah. But it was literally anyone who worked at the roll three got recalled. Anyone who was walking past, we pulled them in just to roll in the patients. And, and how but did when you you're trying to keep? How did you feel overall? Uh, you reacted to the, all, all of this stress. Well, I mean, I think what happened was when I was there at that time, I would always go into like a sense of calm and be like, okay, everyone, you know, focus, we have to do this. So it's like, while you're there, it's like a very calm focused, but then when you leave, you get home and it's like, the I land in crash happens. Well, I mean, I land in Halifax and it's like, I'm standing outside having a cigarette at the airport waiting for my bags and I hear a plane take off and I'm thinking, where's the second one? You know, it's like in your head, it's like, where's his battle buddy? Where's my weapon? You know, you go through that, like, where's my gun? You know, like the whole time it's like, oh, did I leave my gun somewhere? It's like, no, I'm at home. But it's also like you had just done a ramp ceremony for a friend. Then you have this mass cow. Then you got on a plane, and I knew I was going back four months later because I was just on a tab. So it's like... Oh, this was literally right back to back. Yeah, so I got back to Halifax. I drove across the country. I was here for a week in Victoria. Um, They put me on duty, which was awesome. (laughs) Oh, by the way, your duty officer, carry this pager. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why are you doing this? They're like, just carry the pager, no big deal. And (laughs) then, you know, get my furniture throw it in my apartment, back to Petawawa to retrain, to go back to Afghanistan. They're like, oh, this is what it's like there. I'm like, okay. They're like, why are you pulling a face? I'm like, I literally just got back three weeks ago. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, I was just on a TAV. So then I come back to Victoria. And a TAV, for people that don't know, is what? Uh, What do they call it? Technical assistance visit. It's like you relieve the person there ahead of you. So in the x-ray trade, because there are so few of us, what they tried to do was they would send you for a TAV, they would send you in for a month to kind of get the lay of the land. So when you went in for your tour, the person who was leaving already had someone that they could be like, hey, okay, this is what's changed in the last like couple months while you were gone. So you weren't walking in blind. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, a lot of times when we go on tours, like, you know, if you're all landing as a medic, it's like there's a bunch of medics. But when you're going in as an x-ray tech, and for us, because the Americans were in charge, we're one of one. You know, we're the only Canadian working with all Americans. So, you know, the way they train, the way we train is very different because they had, you know, they were medics um, or, you know, they were like U.S. Navy medics, um, hospital corpsmen they call Yep. And then they do specialized x-ray, but it's not the same as us. Like we go to school for two years, write our exam. We're still x-ray techs in the military, but we have to have that certification. In the States, it's a lot different. So, you know, I'm one of one working with these Americans, but our training is a lot higher than theirs. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. Navy radiologist, would quite often look at me above the person that was in charge. So it was like a lot more pressure to on me in the role three, because they'd be like, Hey, and you know, so the Americans would be like, well, why do you ask you to do that? I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, because I have the training and experience for it. He's the radiologist. He's pointing at me. But then, you know, the Americans, I mean, with the Canadians, like, I mean, you deployed, and most of the people listening to this have deployed, where, you know, we kind of 
this many people go in, this many people go in, and we kind of do it over a month. The Americans don't do that. So when they switched out, so I got there in probably, I got there in November, kind of January, February, the Americans um, switched their tour. Most of them had been there for, um, you know, six, 12 months. When they switched out, so when I got back, the guys that were already there, I had just met in the summer. Some of them stayed on. I think there was two guys that stayed. The rest of them switched out within two weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's like changing over. It would be like, say, any hospital, like Pembroke Hospital or Deep River. All of a sudden, you switch out all of the staff. Here's two weeks to train. But it's not the same as like being in a hospital where you just know it's so much different over there. So they ripped everybody in, everybody out within two weeks. So we had a brand new crew. They didn't know how to do CT. So we had, like I was working 12-hour shifts to train the new Americans that came in. Most of them had no training coming in. That's so that a 12-hour shift plus the emergency calls you might get in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, 12-hour shift plus I would go back and I'd be sleeping, pager would go off. There was times where the guy that was working nights or the other guy, like there was only three of us who had the training from before. And the one guy had been, I think they brought him in from Kuwait and he was not the strongest at CT. So they put him mainly on nights. I was like on days into evenings where most of the stuff came in. Yeah. But I remember one night I got like, I get paged and I roll in. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, we need you to do this. We need you to do the CT. I'm like, okay. And then he comes out of the back. He's like, what are you doing here? I was like, I got paged. He's like, I didn't page you. I was like, oh, you don't want me here? But the doctor who was the trauma doc was like, no, I'm the one that paged you. And it was awkward. That's good right there. Well, I mean, I'm looking at the other guy. He's like, because the trauma doc is like, no, I need you here. Because that guy doesn't know what he's doing. But that puts you in an awkward position. Because it's like, you know, they don't trust the other person at right. nighttime by themselves. But I'm like, I can't just come in here all the time. I've been here the whole day because we don't just do x-ray. It's like, you're in the trauma bay, you do the trauma, then you're in CT, then you're in the operating room, then you're in the ICU. Like you're following the patients all the way through. Right. So it's like, if there's only so many people and then they're like, well, there was people that are like, I'm not comfortable in the OR. I'm like, well, you're going to have to get comfortable. Like, I literally can't run every piece of equipment. Oh, I don't know how to do this on CT. I'm like, I can't do a CT and be in the OR at the same time. Right. But, so you're mul- you're multitasked and uh, mm-hmm. you're finding the stress. Of, you're not really finding the stress of it at the time. Um, did you find it rewarding? I loved it. I think it was like, I think that's what caused my problems later was I felt that I had done so much and I was such, I made so much difference in my head, what I was doing and, you know, what the part of the team I was that looking back on it, I feel this like sense of I could never accomplish something like that again. So you didn't feel a self a sense of failure or anything like that. You felt like you were doing a damn fine job. And, uh, I felt like I was doing a fine job, but then as I carried on after that, I was thought, what can I do that would equal that? So it's always like, I'm always aiming so high. You're chasing trying the dragon. To, trying to hit, yeah, essentially. It's like, how can I ever do anything in my life again 
where I feel like I'll make that much of an impact. And I think that's why I have this like unrealistic goals in my head of, you know, my own business. How can I make this business be even better than it is? How can I help my friends even more? How can I be there for my family more? It's like, but you've taken that, you've taken that, those, that, that thought and turned it into a positive with running your business now. Absolutely. And you know, for a long time, it was like, I beat myself up. So I get up and I'm like, Oh, I'm not doing all these things. I think, well, I don't have to, you know, like it's not, Nobody's going to die if you don't get an invoice. Well, and that was it. When I first, I had um, a couple of my instructors when I went to university after, like, especially one of them, she was really kind of instrumental in making me look at things differently because a lot of the things I would talk about Afghanistan and I would talk about who I was in the military. And on one of the things we had to do this like project about leadership because leadership in the military is vastly different than what they're teaching leadership in university and i was like what is this you know it's like you know for us it's like back in the day like i did jlc sl like i didn't do slc but then it was plq ilq that kind of stuff there's always more leadership courses that we have to do outside of the military it's just so different and we're doing this and i was like what is this like what is this leadership course i'm doing and at the end we had to do like a it was like a picture. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but we had to put like pictures. And it was almost like a diary of describing, taking the things that she was teaching us and the things that we'd done in our own life. And it, you know, a lot of it was back to the military. And because she didn't have time to mark them all, but she did like voice recordings for us. Mm-hmm. And what she said to me was, Sarah, like 25 years of your life was the military, but you have so much more than that. Like you have to, Right. Look outside of that. And and that's what gets a lot of uh, soldiers into trouble is they don't have a plan when they leave the military. They But I had a plan, but I still go back to it. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's even though my plan is like, okay, I'm running my business, I have these other business ideas, I wanna do this. Someone says something, I'm like, Yeah, well, you know. No, I I don't know what you're talking about because while you were doing that you know, I was in Afghanistan. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, so it's fair because these are people who are way younger, not necessarily ever something they would think about. But not, them comparing something to what we did, I have to reconcile that not everyone did what we did. And it's not meant for everybody. Like when I got in in 1993, you know, when there was very few women sailing on the ships. I didn't ever envision that years later I'd be in Afghanistan three times. Yeah. You know, but Afghanistan doesn't define who I am, but the military, like 25 years of my life were the military, but I think dealing with looking at, okay, I'm more than just the military has been a hard thing. Even though I went to university, I did very well. I still always feel that that's my identity. And that's where I struggle with it. Well, when when did these struggles occur? Like you were you were released, as I recall, because of anxiety. And well, uh, I was released because I screwed my back up and I had anxiety. Okay. And, and then there was no there was no diagnosis at that time of uh, mental uh, no diagnosis of PTSD. Right. No, not at all. So and what, then as when I did went that along, rise its head, raise its head? Well, and that was it. And then the one day I was, you know, having one of my freakouts 
with one of my best friends and she's, she's one of the people that I can tell everything to. Mm -hmm. And I said, she said, well, you know, that's your PTSD. I said, you know, for the hundredth time, I don't have PTSD. I have an operational stress injury. It's anxiety. She's like, beg to differ. Meantime, your operational you're stress for, injury is PTSD. Meantime, you're looking for exits in and out of buildings in case it's attacked. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm always hypervigilant. I'm always like, you know, thinking about what to do. What's my next move? Thinking things that no one normally thinks. I mean, I think anyone who's been, you know, infantry is probably like ingrained in them. I was never infantry, but I mean, you know, doing foot patrols and you're used to that. But yeah. I think the military makes you think about things. Like while I was in university, two of the girls and, you know, because if you think about Vegas when they had the shootings, mm -hmm. you know, like during the concert. So two of my friends were going to Seattle for this big thing some big concert. And I said, guys, if you hear shooting, if you hear an explosion, here's what I want to do. If you hear an explosion, lay down, lay there for two minutes. If you don't hear anything, then try and find something safe. If you stand up, that's not good. Mm -hmm. And they were like, and I said, no, listen to me because if it's an explosion, most people get hit. You know, if you don't lay down, cause all I was thinking was what we got trained overseas. And all I was thinking was, and they were like, well, we'll never forget that. But I was trying to keep them safe. Right. You know what I mean? But most people wouldn't tell their friends, if there's an explosion while you're at this concert, lay down for two minutes. Like, it's a very odd thing to say. But in my head, it's like the world is in a very different space right now. You're, and so, you're on a different planning. You're, you're planning when things for things to go wrong. And absolutely. So you're ready to react. Yes. And did any of your friends say, you're kind of right the fuck out of her, Sarah? No, they normally like kind of look at me and think, okay, if Sarah is telling us to do something, she's kicked into her military side and we'll listen to her. But afterwards we'll be like, ooh, maybe that wasn't necessary. And then I stop and go, I'm probably being hypervigilant. Like, you know, uh, but you talk to somebody like me or any dozen guys you grab off the street here and uh, each one of them will go. Yeah. When I walk into a restaurant, I look for multiple exits or I don't sure. sit with my back to a door or to a window. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's perfectly normal thinking for, for a good yeah, so small portion of us. I could say us. that to you and you'd be like, yeah, Roger. But yeah. if I say it to a group of girls, you know, like there was a shooting not far from my house and I was like, oh, is this going to be in my head as soon as I heard? Because someone's like, oh my God, there's a shooting. And I was like, huh. In my head, I'm like, is this an active shooter or is it a one-off? Like this was just over a year ago. Right. But I had a bunch of people in my house. So someone's like, oh, should we worry? I said, just give me a minute. I went outside. I made a phone call. I checked into something. But in my head, I was like, if something's happening, I have to keep these 10 women safe. This is where I'm going to lay them all down beside each other because there's two walls there, two walls there. If the shooting happens, the bullet will have to go through these walls. Which is unlikely. Which is, in yeah. my head, I'm like, am I overdoing things? No, but what I mean by I'm, it's unlikely that the bullet's going to make it through that much. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. But I'm thinking, well, if we're sitting right by the window and it comes to the window, 
someone's going to get hit and they're my responsibility. It's like when someone's in your house, it's like, okay, this is my little squad. I have to protect them. You know, when I went to university, when someone was late or someone not there, I'm like, oh, why is that guy not here? Someone's like, who cares? He's an idiot. I'm like, yeah, but what if something's wrong? Because it was ingrained in all of us. Like you take care of your people. Who cares if you don't like that person? You're taking care of them because it's like, oh, there's 28 people in my class. There's 26 people here. Oh, okay, that guy's in my group. He called in sick. Perfect. You know, it's kind of like checking it off in the morning. It's like right. back in the day, friggin' feel them. Okay, line up. You know, Medcoy, Amcoy, everybody here. Yeah, they're all here. Okay, perfect. Report. Everyone's here. This guy's sick. To me, everyone's like in university because they're all civilians. They're like, well, we're paying. If I don't want to get out of bed to come, then I don't come. Yeah, exactly. You know, but for me, I'm like, well, you know, you're missing out. It's like, why do you miss? Why can't you miss a day at class? I'm like, oh, nope. It's just not in my nature. But I mean, you know, it's like the scorpion and the frog. It's not in my nature to miss a day of school because I'm the scorpion. I just can't miss the day of school. You know, I have <laughs> to be there. It's in your nature. It's um, just in my nature. So how, how long did you wander around with these, with being hypervigilant and planning for mass attacks before you ended up seeing a, did you see a psychologist? Well, I was still, I was still seeing a psychologist, but we hadn't kind of got to that. But at the time I had talked to my veterans affairs case manager and said, I think I need to talk to OSI. And my best friend was like, you need, and I was like, no, no, no. And then when I called, got the appointment, talked to him and really opened up for the first time. And I think honestly, I was just like, I was trying to just, you know, I didn't want to let anybody down. I'm like, okay, they're paying for me to go to school. I don't want anyone to think, oh, she has PTSD, so she can't go to school, or, oh, she did all this stuff. Like, I think it was like that, you know, there's so many people I talk to, and they don't want to admit it because they have things they want to achieve, or they're embarrassed. You feel like you're letting someone down. But I think what happened was I compartmentalized so many things from Afghanistan. You know, like, my last tour was eight and a half months, and it was just a lot. Long tour. Yeah, it was a long tour at roll three and it was just constant, constant, constant. And by the end, I was just like, I hate this fucking place. I got to go home. I'm done. And I almost volunteered to stay for a year because they needed an x-ray tech to stay longer. And they were like struggling to find someone. And at one point I talked to one of our docs and I said, Hey, you know, I might volunteer to stay for a year. And he's like, do you really think you want to do that? And I was like, well, I mean, I'm already trained. No one else has to come. Like, why put someone else through this? Oh, my God. Thank God I did not do that. <laughs> it was eight and a half months. Could you imagine me after a year? Oh, absolutely. I think the longest so tour I did was months, seven and a half home. months. And, I mean, I got home, and it's like you just have that, like, I honestly feel most days that I have, like, a dormant bee's nest inside of me. What do you mean and by that? It takes like one person to come up and do something. And it's like, they just poke me with a stick and all of a sudden those bees start buzzing. And my whole body is just like, oh. like, I just feel that anxiety coming on. So what are you doing to co- combat that? Um, What's that? What are you doing to combat that? You're seeing a psychologist. 
Yeah, you, psychologist. Yeah. Um, you, you, I started working out more. And you find I, that physical activity helps you? Yeah, of course. Which, for the longest time, I didn't do it because I got out of school and then I was like, oh, I finally have some time off. I'm just going to relax. But the relaxing turned into, I don't want to do anything. And it was easy to just, oh, no, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. So I'd stopped working out. I'd stopped doing everything. Um, and then all of a sudden I was like, I need a schedule again. And I think that was the biggest thing for me was like having a schedule in the military, having a schedule going to school, not having a schedule. Like I was really busy with my business. And then kind of January of last year, like 2020, was when I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to take a month off and relax. And then the month turned into two months, and then that shooting happened, and then I was, like, hypervigilant and kind of, like, low-key freaking out all the time. And then March was, like, COVID. So it's like, oh, great. So now I'm, like, feel like I'm losing it. And the whole world shut down, you know? So it was, like, everything compounded. And one of my friends said to me, you know, do you feel like, because everyone was always like, oh, how do you feel about this? I said, it's fine. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, I compartmentalized everything. Like, I don't look at it that way. I'm very well balanced. I put it all in little boxes and it's fine. This is fine. That was my, it's fine. This is fine. You know, like Lots the dog on fire drinking tea with the hat. <laughs> that was me for a long time. And then all of a sudden my friend said, do you feel like you took those boxes out of your head, put them in paper bags and put them outside in the rain. And they all <laughs> melted and ran together. It was like, Oh my God, that's exactly how I felt. I just felt like I could not kind of push everything back into those compartments that I had for so that, long. That's an excellent analogy. I'll have to remember that. Yeah. And that's how I felt. And then there was so many, so that was your, that was your aha moment. That's when you realized yeah, and my friend thing, babe, you, like my friend Melanie just looked at me. She's like, I feel like you have PTSD. I was like, no, I don't. And then she left. And then I sat down and I was like, eh. So I looked up like the DSM-5, which has like the definition. Mm -hmm. You know, each thing has like three or four things, which in within each thing of, if you have this, you have at least one of these in each category. And I was like, one. I was like, oh, I'm I'm pushing three or four in each. Yeah. I think for each one, I had just kind of pushed it off, pushed it off. And the other thing I did was not dealing with my stuff because I love helping people. I think that's why I went from like being in the Navy to being a medic and then being an x-ray tech. I love helping people. Right. So once I was out of the military and I was, you know, owning my own business and selling clothes, people are like, I love this stuff. Perfect. What can I get for you? And then people would come to me and be like, can you help me with this? But then people come to me all the time and, hey, this, that. So I would help everyone as a way to not deal with my stuff, which so, is, again. So what, Kate, what, what brought you to the realization that you're helping everybody else and not helping yourself? What, what, what was your aha moment? I was just running out of gas. And at the end of the day, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I just want to sleep. I don't want to do anything in my house. I don't want to deal with my business, which I love. Like my business, four and a half years. Like there was a point last year I was like, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. So you were depressed. Maybe I should sell it. 
you know, yeah, I was depressed. I was anxious all the time. You know, everyone would call me. I couldn't say no. I had no boundaries. You know, so it was just like, I hit the point where I was just like, I'm out of gas. So, you know, you, like, so you've run out of gas. Um, things are sort of falling apart. Your, your business isn't being well looked after. Your physical yeah. health isn't being well looked after. Your, um, so your mental well-being is suffering. Yeah. What, what, what did it take to turn you around? To what did it take for you to realize? Yes, this is. I mean, you looked up the DSM, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual yeah. of uh, Mental Disorders. I think once they said, like, once I talked to the um, psychiatrist, and he was like, "I don't know why they missed this in the military." I said, "It was easy." I told them I didn't have it. Right. I didn't tell them the truth. He's like, "You have PTSD." So I think once they said, "You have PTSD." I kind of stopped and took a look at it and thought I can sit here and I can help every other person and I'm just going to at some point run out right. of sin. Or I can start looking at myself, dealing with my stuff, you know, figuring out how to control the anger and the anxiety, figuring out how to tell my friends like, because people would call me and just launch into stuff. I'm like, you can't just do that. If you call me, you have to say, do you have a minute? Because if I'm in the middle of something, I will drop what I'm doing. But I was like dealing with my psychologist. It was really working on boundaries and saying no. And really just being like, I have to put myself first. Because if I'm not healthy, I can't be there to help my friends, exactly. my family, etc. So I was like, I need to take my medication. I need to keep up with my appointments. And then once, you know, I started hitting that point, I was like, I need a schedule again and I need to go to the gym. I need that like boost every day to go perk out and kind of have that little boost because without a schedule and especially right now, so many people are working from home and it's very different for most people compared to normal. It's right. like, and for me, the other thing was like, I have my one friend who I talk to about literally everything, you know, and I reached out to other people who have gone through it and been like, Hey, I got diagnosed. They're like, well, it's about goddamn time. I'm telling you for years. It's like, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Yeah. It's like, you can tell someone a hundred times, like, you know, you might want to talk to someone you might, but until someone's ready you know, but you can encourage people to be like, Hey, you know, I went through the same thing, like having that empathetic side. And I think having someone who was a close friend who wasn't even in the military, but she'd worked with the military mm -hmm. and just her, she didn't, there's not many people here who knew me before I went to Afghanistan because, you know, it's not like Petawawa were like you were there for a billion years. People would, you know, for you, if, they knew you before Thanks, you went on different that tours. You know, yeah, a billion years. Like they literally built the base around you. You know, <laughs> like oh, I've never liked you, Steve Awawa. <laughs> you know, no, but I mean, like, so let's say years ago when you first got in, if someone's like, oh, a brand new shiny private, Steve. You know, ten years later, oh, that guy is not the way he used to be. But when you're going from base to base and people don't know what you're like, it's harder to kind of track. But like on a big army base where people or in a smaller trade where you can kind of see. But for me, because I'd moved so much in the military, there was a lot of people who didn't know me 
prior to Afghanistan. So they just saw me as like, you know, angry, not smiling Sarah, which also wasn't much different than pre-Afghanistan. I was just more angry, still not as smiley. You know, I was never a big smiler. Mm-hmm. You know that. Yeah. But I think me all of a sudden being like, I can't maintain this tempo of me just helping everyone, having my door open 24-7 to help everybody and not dealing with my own shit. So you ended up dealing with your own shit. You saw a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Um, and I take it they put you through some cognitive behavioral um, therapy it's kind of still, thing. And some medication. Still in process. Yeah, and some medications. Yes. And got you focused on thinking of something other than others. Got you thinking of yourself and needing some help. And you got involved in uh, a physical training regime. Yeah. And I suppose you started eating better as well, did you? Yes. So you started looking after yourself. Yeah. When, when did you start to notice the improvement of of angry Sarah not being angry so much anymore? Well, I think, I mean, because I only got diagnosed kind of last March, I would say it kind of started to shift in the summer when I really, you know, like I try and tell people, instead of me just snapping on people, you know, I try and say, you know, can we switch the subject or I'm not okay with this. And just dealing with my psychologist, like she's like, you have a hard time with boundaries. You have to say no to people. If someone comes to you and says, can you do this for me? You don't have to say yes. Like, why do you feel you have to say yes? I'm like, because, yeah, because I can the, help everybody. These were personality traits you had well before deploying. Well, I think some of it is. I also think um, seeing the amount of like people who died in front of me over there, mm-hmm. I feel this sense of I need to save everybody because there were so many people lost in front of me. So I have this like unrealistic goal that I have to help literally anyone that comes in front of me. Yeah. See, and I but never, not- I never got that. I, you know. I obviously lost patience over the years and um, shit happens, but I never, I never took yeah. it personally. I always said, well, move on. To I don't know that I took it personally. I just, I think I just looked at anyone who comes in my life who needs help. I think, Oh, I have to help them. I don't have to help everybody, nor can I help everybody, right. you know? And so, and that's me, a solid realization right there. Yeah. And it took me, that's over the last year. Like since I really sat down, took a look, And I mean, I would say it's probably, you know, six months before I got diagnosed with PTSD, I was trying to work on boundaries and saying no. And, you know, it was really hard for me. It's it's still hard for me to say no to people. Like, I have to, because I feel like I'm hurting people's feelings. You know, which is ridiculous. You know, I don't have to help everybody, but it's just in my head I feel I do. Why, so, why are you doing this particular uh, interview? Well, I think, first off, I think like me, I think deep down, since I got back from Afghanistan the last time, I knew that it wasn't the same as I was before I went. Right. And I think for a long time I pushed it off and my anger may have affected relationships around me, friendships other relationships. I think 
people need to, you know, there's so many people I know that just won't look at it. And I think, I mean, I'm pretty stubborn. I wouldn't look at it in myself. I wouldn't help myself. So I think if someone's like, I might have something, it's like reach out and talk to someone. It doesn't mean talk to a psychologist if you don't want to, but I think your friends and your family only stretch so far where they don't understand. Whereas someone who's trained to do that can ask the right questions. And I think that was what really switched in me was I had a really good psychologist and she would call me on my bullshit, but she also knew that my anger a lot of times was um, masking. You know, they say that the way you react is kind of the opposite of what you are. So when my feelings would get hurt, when my feelings are hurt, I get mad at people. Let's let's I, let's stop you there for a minute and take you back because uh, I don't think you're really answering the question. Hmm. Why why are you doing this podcast? What are you what are you hoping to accomplish from it? I think maybe if one person listens to it and says, hmm, I'm a lot like her and I've never really looked at that. Right. I'm pushing it aside. I'm not dealing with my own stuff. Maybe I should go talk to somebody or, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with taking medication to even myself out. Yeah. You know, and I think it's awareness. I think there's so many of us that, you know, are, embarrassed you know it's like we have this great career where people look at us and you know we just have this thing in our head or people have put us on this different level that we don't want to come out and admit that something is not okay with us anymore you know and so i think it's okay to not be okay sometimes so that makes sense so if i understand correctly we'll find out if it makes sense i guess right now so if I, you're basically saying, I've been carrying this burden. Um, I've been, I've been broken in some way, and uh, it took me a long time to reach out and get help. But when I did reach out and get help, I I started to uh, to to pick myself up. I started to achieve goals again. I I started to started on the road to, uh, if not healing, at least uh, improving your life. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> so that's that right there. I think, um, if if I understood you correctly, is a is a noble cause, and I think the whole reason for doing these, most people, the whole reason for doing these um, podcasts, is because they want to help other people. Without, I think, without exception, everybody I've interviewed has said, "Look, it's going to be a." In some cases, guys who are in the darkest depths of PTSD, you know, they've they've spoke up and said, "There is help. You might not see it at the at the beginning, but you can you can get help and seek help." A thousand percent. Yeah. And, and and like you said, it's not easy to do because you have to first no. recognize that you have a chink in your armor. You There's something there. You are not um, an island onto yourself. You need help. Everybody needs help. So r- realizing that and seeking out and, and uh, getting that help is, yeah. is on your road to recovery. 
Or even if it's like you, you know, even just dipping your toe in the water and talking to a good friend or finding someone you can trust to talk to about it. Yeah, I'm you not know, so sure. Because you're not ready to go see a psychologist or, you know, if you open up to one person and just say, listen, you know, this is what I'm thinking. I mean, you know, I've never had suicidal ideations or, you know, I say homicidal. I mean, I tell people I'm going to punch them all the time, but, you know, and I have a murder shed in the backyard, but that's not, you know, nobody's in there. But I mean, it's like, I think it just took me a long time to really go instead of me. Yeah. The military just said it was anxiety, but it was much bigger than that. And because they had said, well, you know, you have reactive anxiety disorder. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not okay for me to go from zero to a thousand. Like I could feel myself just snapping. But as I was getting there, I I just, there was nothing I could do. And I knew it was irrational, but it felt like it was the only way until I kind of was like, I need to figure out how to not react like this because this is not okay to the people around me. And to, so how did you, uh, how did you stop essentially snapping on people around you? What, uh, what tools well, I mean, did you I, use? I had to stop and really think about, okay, why am I reacting to this? Like, why am I so mad at this situation? You know, and my psychologist, but how did you get that introspective, uh, look like, why am I doing this? How, how did, how did you come to, uh, come my to psychologist made me look at things and say, well, and I think a lot of times it was like me trying to help other people and say, Oh, well, you know, I'm trying to help them because I don't want people to make the same mistakes I made. Like, you know, Afghanistan or not like, Oh, this person's doing this. And, whether it be a relationship or a friendship or whatever, or how I perceive someone, it's like not everything is about me. So if someone is dealing with something and I think, oh, you know, they're mad at me or whatever, or this is the way they reacted, I just stop and, you know, it's almost like when you're learning drill, the pause two, three, mm-hmm. instead of me reacting and snapping, listening, trying to listen to what someone's saying, and really think about, okay, what are they actually saying? What kind of, you know, sometimes people just need to be heard. Right. You know, it's like that, you know, do you want someone to listen to you or do you want someone to help you find a solution? Sometimes when I just need to bitch about something and someone says, well, you know, especially if I'm talking about Afghanistan and someone who's, you know, never been through something like that. And they're like, you know, I get that because I was driving downtown the other day. It's like, not the same, but they don't know. Yeah. So why am I getting mad? Because, you know, they're trying to relate to me. Right. So I think it was me like having to stop, think and be like, not everyone's been through what I've been through or you've been through or other people have. Yeah. We've all had our different journeys. Yeah. And the roads and are not always the same. So I think me stopping and being more, you know, I don't, I don't like the mindfulness stuff. It's like, breathe it in, think about like, I had to just stop and be like, okay, stop and think and listen to what people are saying. You don't have to react that way. So I think once I was like dealing with boundaries, learning how to say no and looking at situations and being like, why am I so annoyed with this? But it was like, I mean, it was quite a bit of work with my psychologist, but it was also, she was quite good at calling me out on my bullshit. Yeah. Cause I would be like super mad about something. She's like, you just talked about this for 20 minutes. I'm like, yeah. And I'd be so mad. 
And then all of a sudden I'd start crying. She's like, oh my God, I forget every time. She's like, you get so angry and then you start crying because you're upset. Someone's hurt your feelings. And I'm very passive aggressive, but that's something, that's me. Not everyone has that. Like, I mean, you know, so it's like you have to do work. You have to put the work in. Mm. Nothing just fixes overnight. Like we didn't go over there and have shit happen to us overnight and then come home, expect it to just, okay, I'm home now. It's going to go away. No, you have to stop. And if there's, you know, if you're not doing okay, it's going to take work. Did, uh, you know, it's going to take did, time. And if it takes medication, there's nothing wrong with that. Like medication might not be for everybody, but for me, it calmed the bees nest inside me, yeah. you know, like instead of those bees constantly buzzing around and making me, you know, hypervigilant and just wanting to snap on everybody, it calms me down and makes me go, okay. I can stop. I can listen to someone. I can think I need to go to the gym. I need to have a routine. I know this is what I need for me. And that's not for everybody. Maybe someone wants to sleep, you know, 12 hours a day, get up. And, you know, if they read a chapter of a book, that's what they've done. But it's like, we're very high, you know, we're a lot of is expected of us in the military. Mm -hmm. So we get out. I think we have those high expectations of ourselves. And that's hard to maintain. And so when you don't have that anymore, people are like, oh my God, I feel like such a failure because I sat around and watched TV today. But if that's all you can do that day, that's okay. Yeah. You know, like Did you... sit and watch TV that day. Don't beat yourself up. The next day, get up and do something else. Yeah. You know, like I think that's a big thing. It's like we're so high energy, high driven for so long. It's okay to take a day to relax. Yeah, you it's need okay that downtime. Let yourself have a day to chill. Because we went through a lot, whether people went overseas, whether people, you know, went through stuff working back home all the time. You know, it's like take that time to yourself once you retire, whether you did five years, twenty five years, thirty five years. It's okay for us to relax, but like the worst thing for me was to sit and do nothing. Yeah. I was gonna. You know, I was gonna ask you. My head the whole time. I was gonna ask you. Did you uh, did you have any uh, religious faith that helped get you through it, or anything mm. anything like that? No, no. But I mean, I I I wasn't raised with religion. Like, you know, I grew up in Kimberley. There's like six different churches. I went to all of them just to see what they were like. Mm-hmm. I've I've always just kind of been like, you know, an island onto myself the same as like I was never married I don't have kids like I have a dog you know he's my life right now Ricky Bobby you know because if you ain't first you're last but like (laughs) I think you know religion I've thought about it off and on but I think my friends you know because I haven't lived close to family for a long time Mm -hmm. and my friends have been what have got me through everything you know like I'm very fortunate that I came back to Victoria and when I came back out here, I had friends that I had from 1993. Mm -hmm. You know, I got back here in 2010. I kind of picked up with my friends that I started in the Navy with. So, you know, I, I have a good support system around me. My family is a good support system. You know, I think I was missing having a best friend and then Melanie kind of, 
you know, we'd known each other for years and then we just kind of started opening up more to each other. So I had her, I made sure I was going to the psychologist because once I started going, it was like, this is something I need for me to maintain this. Cause even when I was feeling good, I would still go once a month because there's always that like, uh, you know, this is bothering me. And I could feel myself on times where something big would happen. I could feel myself slide. So it's almost like prophylactic, like keep going, you know, keep taking my medicine, like my medication, keep, you know, going to the gym. Like now, like my knees blown out, but I was like, okay, so I can't run. I can't do the things I was doing before. And that was the big thing. It's like, Oh, I'm injured. I can't do this. I can do other things. Like I started going to the pool two months ago mm-hmm. and I'm probably in better shape than I have been in like three years, mm-hmm. like within a month and a half. It's like, Oh, that's what it's like to like focus on something, have a schedule, talk to my friends, be open. So focusing on something down, other than your focusing on something other than your inner demons. Yeah. And I mean, right now is so hard for people because Every province has its own restrictions. Yeah. People are home by themselves. There's so many days where you just can sit and dwell. Okay, we're coming up on an hour here, Sarah. Yes. Um, give me your your top five pieces of advice for somebody who's dealing with a mental injury. I would say, first off, roll it around your head. Try and, you know, if you don't want to admit it, at least... Listen to, if people around you are saying it, there's got to be some weight to it. Right. Um, Reach out, talk to them. That's two. Talk to somebody professional because your family and your friends only go so far. I would say go easy on yourself because, you know, we're our own worst, worst critics. And get outside, go for a walk, get some exercise. Solid advice. And what if I mean, what if somebody's feeling suicidal? What would you say to them? Well, I would say find someone you can talk to. Go to the hospital. Like, like I said, I've never felt that, but I have friends who I've seen. You know, keep an eye on your friends on Facebook. You know, because most of us are on Facebook. Yeah. You know, you can see when someone's talking normal. You can see when there's a shift. And if you see someone post something that you're like, eh, don't wait to reach out. You must be absolutely panicked when you read some of my posts then. (laughs) They're not normal. For a while I was like, oh God. (laughs) But, you know, like I have certain friends that I worry about more than others. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you kind of get that. But if someone is like posting something that's out of the normal, pick up the phone and call them, text them. Like, I have one friend, he's like, stop calling me. He's like, no, I'm not going to stop calling until you pick up your goddamn phone. Because, and then after we talk, he's like, I'm so glad you called. You know, because sometimes they'll post something because they don't know how to reach out. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's a cry for help. Sometimes it's just like a breadcrumb. It's not a, it's not a full-blown cry, but it's enough that, you know, they're in their own head enough that, it takes one person to reach out and be like, dude, you all right? What's up? Nothing. Bullshit. Because you know your friends. Mm-hmm. You know, like you call them on their bullshit, they're going to open up. And sometimes that's all it takes is one phone call. 
So you want to reach out, but not necessarily smother them. No, I don't smother my friends. I keep an eye on them. I check in on them. You know, hey, how's it going? Haven't talked to you in about a week. You good? You know, and vice versa. Like, there's times where I don't really want to talk, but I have my friends that would push through. Like, what are you doing? No, I'm coming over. I'm like, no, no, no. So I'm like, I don't really care what you say. I'm popping by for coffee. And at the end of the day, I open up, I have a chat. And yeah. I think, especially right now, because people are home alone, that's what you have to do. You know, be be cognizant of what's going on and try and listen. You know, so many people talk and then pause while the other person talks. But while the other person's talking, they're just waiting what they're going to say next. Yeah. No, listen to people because you can pick up so many things just listening to the words. And how they're being said. Yeah. And if you, you know, are, I mean, if it's evolved. a very light conversation, that's how it's going to go. They might say one thing that, you know, and if you know them, even people you don't really know that well, you can pick up on keywords, but you have to listen to people, you know, you have to be, we open. have to be where we have to be there for each other right now because the world's in a strange place. So if we were like struggling before, you know, it's even some people are struggling even more now because people are more isolated than they ever have been. Right. And and are under financial stresses they've never been under before and social stresses. And- Absolutely. I mean, have you ever seen, I mean, Steve, you've been around a billion years, like we said. <laughs> have you ever seen the military get sent home? Sent Indefinitely, home. like the beginning of this pandemic? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Why did I retire? I could be at home. <laughs> I no, could be getting money like, for oh, nothing. I'm gonna retire. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, I have, I did 25 years. There was never a time in my life where they're like, just go home. Oh, there were some weather days in there. There were some weather days in there. That was about it. It was, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, it's snowing. Don't come in. (laughs) Shut down the base. I've never seen the military be like, stay home. This is the safest thing. Stay away from each other, you know, so we have a fighting force. This is the best way to do it. Stay at home. I was like, what the hell? This must be serious. You know? (laughs) And it is. Yeah, I'm like, ooh. So, but, again, what what are your uh, final, final words? My Keep... final words are, get a dog. No, I'm just joking. No, a dog's a good my idea, probably. My final words are. I agree, you know, I agree with you with the dog part. If, if, oh, if, yeah. you, if you can uh, afford and have the space and the time, get yourself a dog. If you have the time and you don't want to, have, you don't want to dump it on people all the time. But because I said I wouldn't get one till I was out of the military. Yeah. I didn't get one till I was with someone, and then you know I still have the dog. He gone. <laughs> Perfect. No, but I mean, I just think if you feel that you're at this point, if you feel that something's not okay, there's nothing wrong with going to ask for help. And if it starts with just talking to one person you trust. You know, like, that's all it takes. But your friends and your family can't always be the patch. Like, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with talking. And I know a lot of guys in the military, like, you know, the macho, no, I'm fine. It's like, it's okay to not be okay. Go talk to somebody. Yeah, you might. Nobody knows you're talking to someone, but if you can work on your own stuff and, you know, you have to put yourself first because if you can't put yourself first, then you can't be there for other people. So in other words, don't try to go it alone. Get somebody don't burn yourself trained. Up helping everyone else. All right. right? Yeah. 
that's solid advice there, Sarah. Yeah, I hope so. It is. Um, like, you, like you said, if these are things that you can't, you said it better, but you can't, you can't go it alone. You, no. you can try, but eventually the weight of it's going to, going to wear you down. So well, it go, just weighs you down to the point where it's like, I'm no help for anybody. Yeah. So get, get, get a psychologist, get a psychiatrist, uh, yeah. get some help. But even if you start with your friends, yeah, you know, or if you see friends who are struggling, you know, you can't push people to go see professional help, but you can say, well, you know, this is what I did. Like I share my knowledge with what I've learned and I'll say to people, well, is this, you know, are you dealing with this? Yeah. How did you know? I'm like, well, when I saw my psychologist, this is what we talked about. You know, it might help you. And you know what? I've had friends who started going to counseling because they saw me making a change. And I've had people say to me, man, you're like a different person than a year ago. Yeah. So I, it does help. And all it and started with, wrong with it. all it started with for your friends was a simple phone call from you. Exactly. And if anyone ever wants to talk, I yeah. work from home. <laughs> I print t-shirts and shit from home. I'm always around. All right. On that note, Sarah, um, I, I guess we'll sum it up there. I think that's some Perfect. good, solid advice. Um, I hope this one recorded, Steve. Well, it all sounds good. <laughs> Otherwise, I think no one's going to want to hear my stuff. I've, Take 47 and go. I'm, I'm going to make sure this one comes out in the next month or two. I won't put it off anymore because you've gone uh, <laughs> through an unusual uh, bunch of technical glitches here. And I feel if you, like this one was better than the rest, though. Yeah, this one felt, felt really good. But hang on, we won't talk about that anymore. Um, right. Just hold on, hold on while I do my sign off here. Roger. And for those of you uh, listening, my mom, Sarah's mom, Pete's mom, Greg's mom, and Greg himself, I think those are all my listeners. Oh, my kids listening. So Zach, shout out to you as well. Um, thanks a lot for uh, tuning in and listening to Rockus Bacchus, folks. Um, as always, you can get a hold of me or any of my guests through me at stevecopang at gmail.com. That's Sierra, Tango, Echo, Victor, Echo, Charlie, Kilo, Oscar, Papa, Papa, Alpha, November, Golf at gmail.com. And be good to each other out there because the world can be a shitty place. But we only have each other to depend on. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Be kind. Cheers, folks.